Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, happy holidays. Today's episode of Other People is brought to you by the good people at Squarespace, an all-in-one platform that makes it simple for you to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace offers a wide array of customizable designs and templates. You can make your site look exactly how you want it to look. Uh, functionality, on-the-go convenience, it's all there. There are so many bells and whistles available to you at Squarespace, you will not believe it. Uh, oh, best of all, it's easy to use. But if for any reason you need help, Squarespace has a wonderful crack support team at the ready 24-7. And remember... These people work in an office that has been nicknamed the Care Bear Lair. The Care Bear Lair. Are they actually bears? No. Do they actually care? You bet they do. Packages start at just 8 bucks a month, and you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Also, every single site design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that will match the overall style of your website, so your content will always look great on every device every time. So let's go. Let's do this. Do not waste a single second. Start a trial right now with no credit card required and start building your website. Visit squarespace.com and when you sign up, be sure to use the offer code OTHER12. Again, that offer code is OTHER12. You do that, you get 10% off. And uh, hey, it's the holiday season. Maybe this year you give someone special the gift of Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com right now and take advantage of this wonderful offer squarespace it's everything you need to create an exceptional website so go and create one. Oh my god you are not alone you have found other people you and i have a friend in common every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done i think it's really beautiful Jeez, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is why you have your headphones on. This is an excellent way to ignore your friends and family members during the holidays. Thanks for being here. Thank you for taking a moment to enjoy the program. My name is Brad Listy. I'm reporting to you from Los Angeles. And I'm presuming that you're enjoying the program, and we haven't even gotten started barely yet. Is that a sentence? Anyway, I don't mean to get cocky. It's good to be with you. Did you have a nice Thanksgiving? Did you survive? Did you travel? Were you on a train? Were you in a car? Were you on an airplane? 
just to just to uh, take a moment to bend your ear. I don't mean to be ridiculous, but if you are traveling for any reason, whether it's the holidays or not, you should have podcasts on hand. You should have the other people app, the official app of this program on your handheld device, whether it's an iPhone, an iPad, an iPod touch, or your Android. The app is free. You can download episodes to listen to offline. And then when you go to the airport and your flight is delayed or canceled or what have you, you then have a way to pass the time. What am I saying? Here's what I'm saying. Please let me accompany you as you endure the excruciating hell of holiday travel. Otherwise, I'm really excited about today's program. Colin McCann is the guest. He won the National Book Award in 2009 uh, for his novel, Let the Great World Spin. Earlier this year, he published a new novel uh, to great acclaim. It's called Transatlantic. And now he has curated an anthology uh, in association with the editors of Esquire magazine. It is called The Book of Men. It is available now from Picador. Uh, Here's what it is. Over 80 authors, including many luminaries, uh, have contributed to this book. And each of them has set out to answer the question, what does it mean to be a man in this world? Uh, And I should note that both male and female writers have attempted to respond. It's a very fascinating book. And best of all, uh, it was published to support Narrative 4. Narrative 4 is a new nonprofit that uh, Column is a founder of. And it's an organization that gets groups of people together, especially young people. And it uses storytelling as a way to bridge cultural divides and to build empathy. So uh, it's a great cause. It's very cool what they're doing. And uh, sales, you know, sales of the Book of Men uh, benefit this uh, nonprofit. So I'll be talking about that, amongst other things, with Column in just a moment. It's also worth noting that the Book of Men is the December selection of the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is an online culture magazine and a literary community that I founded back in 2006. If you would like to join the book club or give a book club membership as a gift this holiday season, which I highly recommend, please visit TheNervousBreakdown.com and just click on Book Club in the menu bar. Okay, so a couple of messages from listeners, and then we'll get started. Uh, I've been getting some really nice emails lately, some nice Facebook messages and uh, tweets and so on. Maybe it's the holidays. Is that what it is? Is it the holiday spirit? Whatever the case, uh, people have been very kind to me lately, sending in messages uh, that I have found touching. So perhaps you will be similarly touched. Here's an email from a listener named Caleb who writes, Dear Brad, I want to thank you for the work that you do on the Other People podcast. I'm a writer living in Laramie, Wyoming, and five days a week I get up at 4 a.m. and go to work as a janitor. Listening to your conversations with writers about their struggles and successes makes scrubbing toilets and emptying trash cans and mopping floors a whole lot more tolerable. Keep up the good work, Caleb. So what can I say in response to something like that? Uh, I really appreciate hearing that, Caleb. Thank you. That makes me feel good. That is exactly uh, what I want this show to do at its very best. Uh, I like the idea of people listening to this program while doing something awful. (laughs) 
while uh, engaged in uh, soul-crushing manual labor in the frigid pre-dawn hours. I like the idea of people actively suffering while listening and then finding some measure of comfort in the show, if that makes sense. Uh, It's a pain reliever. That's what I'm saying. This show is like Tylenol uh, or Novocaine or Tiger Balm. Uh, Is Tiger Balm a pain reliever? You know what I mean. Thank you, Caleb. I'm serious about that. Uh, I really appreciate it. I'm glad you like the show and thank you for taking the time to send word. So uh, one more really nice message and uh, then we can get going with the main event. This one is from a listener named Marcus who writes, Hey Brad, I listen to your show with my headphones every day, some episodes multiple times. During my three-hour commute on the London Underground, Monday to Friday, I found your show around the same time as I was reading Reality Hunger, and both that book and your show struck a chord, something like a chord. Your voice loosens me up and makes me feel better about being in the world. It also loosens me up so I can walk into my classroom and have a conversation with my students. I feel better in the world when I am loose. I hear your voice sometimes when I open my mouth. Not exactly your voice, but something like it. I also have a conversation semi-quietly with myself when I'm listening to your show and walking up the hill to university. The other week I used part of episode 221 in my travel literature class at Richmond American University in London. Most of the 33 students are study abroad students from all over the United States. So part of that episode fit in nicely. It opened up a warm and honest conversation about their experiences traveling around Europe as an American study abroad student. A fantastic class. Thanks for keeping me open and conversational and for helping me feel a little less alone. The world really is a better place with these kinds of open and honest conversations. Thank you, Marcus. So thank you, Marcus. That's really nice to hear. And uh, <clears throat> I do agree with you. I think the world needs more honest conversations. And lengthy ones. This is what I've come to after doing this show for, you know, two years and change. Uh, you know, an honest conversation that's only two minutes long is wonderful. Uh, but the truth is, if you're going to get anywhere interesting, you need at least a half an hour, if not more. Preferably a full hour plus. You need time to digress, is what I'm saying. You need time to have accidents. That's my feeling. Anyway, uh, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks for writing. If you want to send me an email, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com, uh, or you can leave me a voicemail over at the show's website, uh, which is www.otherpeoplepod.com. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. 
It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Colin McCann. He is the curator uh, of this great new collection called The Book of Men, published by Picador, available now wherever books are sold, the December pick of the TNB Book Club. And remember, folks, when you buy a copy of this book, a portion of the proceeds is donated to Narrative for the nonprofit uh, organization that I was talking about earlier. If you would like to learn more about that, just visit narrative4.com. Okay, so Colin McCann, what a thrill to have him here. I think you guys are going to really enjoy hearing from him. Here he is. This is Colin McCann, and the new collection, once again, is called The Book of Men. So I'm in uh, New York. I uh, happen to be the least cool writer in the whole of New York because I don't live in Brooklyn. Uh, I actually live on the uh, on the Upper East Side, and I'm in my apartment, and um, and I have a funky office uh, where I sort of sit in a, a in in a little cubicle area, um, and I'm sort of tucked in. Uh, between, I'm tucked in the cupboard basically. I'm in the closet right now. Okay, because I've, I've read about this, uh, and I've actually seen a picture of you sitting in this thing. It's like a, a little cubby hole that you had constructed, and this is where you do your writing, correct? Yes, yes, yeah. It's mad. It's completely mad. I mean, I, it, it all came about by accident because um, I was um, having a friend of mine who's a carpenter, George, was. Um, uh, we were building a desk in, 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 in my office, and it just so happened that I wanted a wraparound desk. And so the, um, there was a cupboard there, and I said, I think I could just um, put the desk all the way into the cupboard as well, because there's no way I'm going to get out of it. And then I, um, I began to sit on, on the desk and, and then slid into the cupboard, and I said, this is a nice place to write, because um, you have to actually concentrate your, 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 your vision in, entirely. So you've got like a wall on either side of you, and it, it forces me. And I sit with a, uh, a computer in my lap, and... and, and um, and then I uh, I compose whatever uh, whatever it is that I compose, be it good, bad, or ugly. Okay, so and you know just to make, just to kind of uh, refine the description a little bit so that listeners know, like this is a I mean this is a tiny it's almost like body width, and you just like kind of wedge yourself in there. There's a wall on either side of you that's almost touching you, so you have nothing really to look at on your periphery. All you can really look at is the screen in front of you. That's it. Really? Exactly. It's it's that, that uh, yeah. It's a it's a, it's like a little literary coffin, if you will. <laughs> like a sensor. It's like sensory deprivation, which makes total sense to me because I, I'm so easily distracted. Yeah, but it gets really hot in 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 in, in summertime, so I have to have like a series of fans blowing at me, and 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 and, and sometimes it's like one of those odd um, conductors of sound through the rest of the building, so you can hear. Um, you know, arguments from from other uh, apartments and uh, like a dog yelping in the background. So a lot of the time, I have um, I have music playing as well. I don't have any music playing now, but um, a oh. lot of the time, I'd, I'd have uh, Van Morrison or David Gray or whatever it happens to be. Well, sure, but I, I was just going to say, it sounds like a, a couple of things. First of all, 
you're in a sensory deprivation chamber, essentially. And with the fans going, I feel like that would add some white noise, which could, you know, which could add something. <laughs> and then yeah. and then you're also getting through the pipes and through the walls, uh, you know, arguments from neighbors and whatever. And that can be useful for a fiction writer, you know, to be overhearing things like have you sure. ever, have you ever picked up anything that's wound its way into one of your books? No, 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 no. But but didn't I think Cheever wrote a story about that, about uh, an apartment block where where where, where there was a, a shaft which was like a, a a a radio. I think it was Cheever who wrote it. it might have been somebody else. But um, no, I've never I've never I, I'm not a magpie in 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 that sense. I don't live as a writer in the world and 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 look around at what's happening uh, close to me and say ah I can use that or I, I can. I tend to think that you know most of this stuff settles down into your DNA and then emerges later um, uh, unconsciously uh, in, in the fiction. So that every experience that you have obviously um, affects the way that, that you choose the language that you put on the page. But I, you know, there are certain writers, and I'm not saying it's a good, good way or a bad way, but there are certain writers who look around the world and say, ah, you know, I like that. I like the color of that car. I like the sound of that uh, that line that that woman in the restaurant just said, and that, that sort of thing. Um, I, I I don't live like that. So um, you know, I I like this sort of um, this sort of uh, shotgun imaginary leap into the into the unknown. Well, yeah, I was I I want to say I was reading something, or maybe maybe I was talking to someone. It all bleeds together after a while, <clears throat> but. It was. It, it, I think the subject matter was uh, journaling. You know, keeping some sort of diary as a writer, and whether or not, um, you know, documenting each day and taking down details is a worthy exercise. And I'm sure for some people it is. But uh, w you know, the anecdote that I'm remembering, uh, you know, the writer was essentially saying everything that you really need is going to stick anyway, and anything, yeah. anything that you don't need is going to go away. So it just sort of weeds itself out naturally. You don't need to write stuff down. And I sort of fall into that camp. I think. You know that, like you said, that stuff's going to embed itself into your um, consciousness or subconsciousness, and and you know if you do the work when you need it, it'll be there. Exactly. You know um, about um, oh, Jesus. It's it's um, about twenty seven years ago. Um, I took a a, a mad bicycle trip um, across the United States, and um, so I went basically twelve thousand miles on a on a on an eighteen speed Schwinn. Uh, over the course of a year and a half or so, and um, you know, I took notes as I was traveling, and and um, but I've never actually written about that particular trip. And one of the reasons why I haven't written about it is because I still feel that it's feeding my fiction or informing uh, the characters and the choices um, that 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 I'm making. You know, the best part of three decades later, and I feel that if I wrote it down, I'd lose it somehow. That's in, that's interesting. I was going to ask you about that because, um, you know, I did uh, I hiked the Apple or part of the Appalachian Trail. I did a thousand miles on the trail when I was twenty one, which I, it's kind of a similar impulse, I think, driving yeah. this. But I, I always joke. I'm like, it's always going to be the coolest thing I ever did. Like, you can't really like the the time in my life. I was young. I was physically strong enough to do it. I had the time to do it. I was you know just kind of drifting or whatever right after college. Yeah. But I, I don't know how you like. How can you top? Riding twelve thousand miles around America on, a, on an eighteen-speed Schwinn. I mean, that's you've peaked. You could, <laughs> in you, a sense. No, you, you you could ride thirteen thousand miles around South America on a fifteen-speed Schwinn. Well, yeah, there you go. But I don't when know. When you're seventy, uh, that would be. I think that would top it. I mean, are, is that a plan for you? Do you want to do? Yeah. Something? 
It is. Actually, yeah. I mean, at, at the end, I mean, first of all, I, I agree with you. I think everybody should do something that doesn't compute, you know, especially like when you get out of college. Um, you should do something mad and off the wall. Um, and, 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 and I know it, you know, a thousand miles, is that, 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 that's pretty damn good. I've walked, uh, say, from Dublin to uh, Killarney, Dublin to Galway and Belfast to Kerry and uh, Killarney as well. But I've never done a thousand miles in one in one fell swoop. That must have taken you what about two months? Three. It was a three. Three months. months. It was just a summer. I lived, you know, basically lived for an entire summer out outside with a dog. Fabulous. It was good. me too. I I love doing that and like sleeping outside, tent tent sleeping bag. And the thing is, you know, I came from a sort of uh, relatively middle class suburban Irish family, and here I was. Um, and, and, and I had what, what was essentially a, a happy childhood, which, as Tolstoy would say, is the worst thing for, for, for <laughs> a writer to get. Right. And, 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 and so I had to sort of force myself into looking at the world in some sort of new way. I'm sure uh, you, you were doing the same, right? Yeah. I mean, I, this is another joke I always tell because I'm, a similar, I'm from a similar set of circumstances, like middle class, parents together, happy childhood. And yeah. uh, I just had a conversation with Claire V. Watkins um, on this show uh, recently, and she had a difficult childhood. And yeah. we were talking about the envy that writers sometimes feel. It's kind of a perverse envy that you feel for writers who had really shitty experiences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? I used to laugh with Frank McCourt that he got all the misery in Ireland, the poor, you know, yeah. and, 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 and he, left, he left none for me, and I needed some, so I had to go out and invent it. Yeah. Well, that yeah, uh, that's like another joke is that, you know, because I had such a fortunate set of circumstances as a kid, uh, you know, you go to college and you're lucky enough to go to college. And then you're also alive in a time when you're not, um, you know, drafted into the military to go fight in some exactly. war. And, you know, so you you then wind up, uh, you know, living like a hedonist, essentially, uh, while you're getting your education. And, you know, you, you seek out these, I think, or at least this was the case with me, you seek out these extreme experiences um, chemical or physical or whatever it happens to be. And, you know, that functions as, you know, I mean, it, to, to compare it to a war is ridiculous, but it's not really, do you know, I mean, what, do you know what I'm saying? Though? No, I know exactly what you're saying. And, and, and the thing is that fiction does this too. I mean, or, or, or proper, proper writing has the same sort of like, like madcap, um, adventure and, and risk of failure, risk of death. Um, that 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 sort of original impulse has too. I mean, uh, for me, um, I, I I don't do any you know really crazy reckless journeys uh, uh, you know anymore. I'm more mannered. I got three kids. I live in the Upper East Side, like I said. But I tell you what, when I when I get going on the fiction and 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 I step into somebody else's body, somebody else's geography or mind or whatever it happens to be, that's when I'm going on these the, 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 these wild sort of um, adventures that can sometimes be be very very miserable. Tell me this: when you were when, when you were walking on the Appalachian Trail, were there nights when you said, "Fuck this! This is crazy! This is every crazy. single night." Yeah. <laughs> it was it was the hardest thing. I've ever done physically, uh, emotionally. I was alone. You know, I think if I had done it with somebody and had somebody to talk to other than my dog, I think it might have been better. It would it would, you right. know, it would have to be the right person. But you can't. It's the kind of thing you can't really prepare for. You know, like you right. you can ride your bike and train or whatever, and you can be in great shape. But until you've got eighty pounds on your back, or until you're, you know, at the end of your tenth consecutive hundred mile bike day or whatever. You're just yeah. you can't you can't really prepare. So you just have to kinda of go out there and step into it. And, you know, I found myself 
especially because the experience began literally 10 days after I graduated college. So it was really, right. it was really jarring. Um, I found myself just like basically like trapped inside my own head for three months outside. Mm. And all I did was kind of relive memories and have conversations with myself. And you really get to know your own, like the craziness of your own mind when you're in that sure. sort of a, you know, situation. So, well, I think, you know, I've, I've done some serious walks too. And, 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 and I think that, 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 that walking is a closer form of, 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 you get closer to your madness than you do with cycling or something, or something like that. I mean, when I was walking through Ireland, I mean, I would go and like, Sing mad songs at the at the top of my my, my head, you know, hours and hours on end, you know, fooling with ridiculous mathematical equations, and then, <laughs> right. uh, you know, and then remembering poems, and then having conversations with old girlfriends, and uh, you know, all that crazy um, uh, sort of stuff. Um, it happened more so, even more so, when I was walking than, than 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 when I was biking. I think walking, quite frankly, is the holiest form of travel that you can get. But also, you're, it's closest to being like over the edge. Yeah, well, I mean, there's and it's a very common thing. I've, I've I kind of have learned this after the fact, but a lot of writers are walkers. Like uh, mm. I remember reading like Henry David Thoreau walked for four hours a day, or you know, yeah. And who knows who knows how true it was? But I mean, I think it it oh, makes some makes sense. sense. It makes, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, McEwen. McEwen is a big walker. I, I, I know. I, I, yeah, a lot of people who are who are who are good, good hikers. Um, yeah, I, I think you know. Well, I, I mean, the fact of the matter is, you actually need physical exercise too. Yep. I mean, I I I, I go bonkers. Um, I, right now, I have tendonitis in my left ankle, and I'm going mad because I can't get get out and run. I like to run, um, but um, it's driving me a little bit. It's driving me a little bit uh, crazy, and um, I'm going to have to. Uh, if you know a good acupuncturist, please let me know. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I mean, I, I feel for you because I'm the same way. Like, I'm one of those people who has to move in order to – I think it's kind of like a mood regulator, but I think I think it's also just habitual. Like, if you get into that mode, you don't necessarily feel like yourself until you've gotten some – I don't know. I like to break a sweat, you know, and uh, yes. I'm, I'm sort of, like, mystified by people – who can live their lives without that? Like, how do you yeah. how do you do that? You know? Right. Uh, or you know, well, yeah, that's also very Calvinist of you too. It's like, um, you know, and maybe you have a, 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 a one of those weird religious uh, um, streaks where where you know the the necessity of good hard work and that sort of thing. Because I, I I I know I feel that. Yeah, um, I definitely and, have that. Yeah. You know, I definitely have that. So. Uh, you know, you come from, and you come from uh, like kind of an athletic family. Your father was a professional soccer player, correct? Ah, uh, yeah. But I mean, the funny thing is, I mean, anybody take one look at me, they know I'm not really athletic. And my dad was a professional soccer player, but he was sort of second string. Um, and um, really, we were uh, we were, we were more a literary family because um, when he finished playing soccer in England, he became a reporter for the BBC. Uh, in in um, in England, and then went back to Ireland and became a features editor of a um, a daily newspaper there. And and um, you know his passion was books, and also his, uh, the other passion that he had was roses. He was grow. He used to grow roses. He was a horticulturist, and um, and um, he's still alive and 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 kicking uh, in 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 Dublin. Uh, but mostly it was, you know, um, coming back. And he would um, bring back books like, for me, he'd bring back Kerouac and uh, Brodigan. I remember reading Trout Fishing in America, and it just blew my mind when I was about 15, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, 
Ferlinghetti, uh, oh, Snyder. Uh, I remember reading Turtle, Turtle Island. Uh, and what's that line um, about Japan? Uh, oh, it was about the, them polluting. And, and he says, um, and a once great Buddhist nation drops methyl mercury like gonorrhea into the sea. Okay. And, and I thought, wow, people can write like that. Look, look at that, you know. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so it was a real opening for me. So it was my my, my 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 dad bringing all those books home to me that sort of opened my eyes to the possibility of of, of literature. Well, that's a good dad, good taste, you know. And I mean, I think it's he had the age the age range right. Those books are like young, you know, young man books. Um, they are. I feel like you know. So he he knew he knew what you were up to. <laughs> In fact, I'm terrified to to, to read um, uh, Kerouac again, just because I'm pretty sure that I I won't like it as much. Um, you know now, but I, but but when I was sixteen, all the way through to you know my early twenties, mid twenties even, I thought I thought the world of Kerouac. Yeah, me too. Um, me too. I mean, so, I think that part of the reason why you got on that bike, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I mean, I didn't have any um, uh, Dean uh, was it Neil Cassidy or Dean Moriarty um, uh, 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 alongside me. But uh, I suppose we all have a bit of the the, the, the Kerouac and the Cassidy, in, 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 you know, mixed up inside us somehow. Well, it's kind of crazy to think when you know about the impact of Kerouac culturally, and how many like crazy road trips he's inspired and like crazy adventures. You know, that that's kind of a nice legacy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, and he's also responsible for a lot of people getting very high, and and, and, <laughs> and you know, and a lot of like illegitimate babies and all sorts of things all all all, all over the country. I suppose that's a good thing to have as well. As everything else. Yes, but no, that's you know, it's funny when you think about. I mean, because obviously you can't point to it as like a single influence, but it's a you know, it can be a significant influence on people and it can be part of the equation in terms of their decision making, but. Be interesting. Sure. It'd be interesting to really parse it out, like just in a few lives. Like, how did this book affect you, and what did it lead to? And you know what I'm saying? Like, if you could stack sure. the if you could stack the dominoes and try to figure out what it actually meant, uh, you know, across the spectrum. Right. Well, you know, literary life right now is so fucking decorous in 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 comparison to to uh, what it used to be. You know, and I've been reading, say, about even the early 70s and late 60s, early 70s, and um, going all the way back to 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 fifty, maybe time just concentrates things a little bit. But it just seems that right now we're all so sort of well behaved and patting each other on the back and saying nice things about one another and you know uh, not squaring off and in in in, in um, public debates. That could mean two things. It could mean that we're nicer people, which I doubt. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, right. Or it means that we're less relevant, which is possibly the, uh, the the more the more profound reason for you know um well i'm thinking i'm thinking i'm thinking of like uh, norman mailer and gore vidal like back in the day when writers went on like the nightly you know talk shows yeah. and they were more central to the culture and like you you had those kinds of people um in the public square you know or at least closer to the center of the public square but sure um I, you know it's fun to watch those old clips and you go god there's no there's really no um parallel in the modern age i can't think of one anyway you know where who would you who, who would you fight if you wanted to have a scrap oh man you're putting me on the spot i'm trying come to on uh you gotta be somebody you want to throw <laughs> a punch at uh oh god let me think on it i'm sure there, there's there's m multiple people i'm sure you know yeah. but i like off the top of my head i can't think of one 
that I'd, okay. want to, I'd want to hit. What about you? <laughs> Do you have somebody in mind? Oh, the last asshole who um, um, gave me a hard time in the London Review of Books uh, for for my blurbing policy because I was um, basically he didn't even he didn't even have the smarts to use this word, but he said I was too promiscuous in my in 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 my blurbing policy, as if it fucking matters. Now, you try to help out these young young writers, and so you write blurbs, and and then some little shitbag comes along and 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 gives you a hard time for trying to 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 help people out and like judging the quality of your literature based on 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 how you blurb a book which you write in 30 seconds flat you know yeah well you know i so your policy is pretty generous which i think is great um you know what i tried to be generous but but after that i'm i'm like um, i'm thinking you know i'm going to um reduce my policy now just to to uh, first time writers um, and you know, he he gave me a hard time saying that uh, that I I had acknowledged that it was a bullshit factor that was there, um, but then I had you know done blurbs for Nathan Englander and, and you know people who didn't need those. The fact of the matter is that the, that 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 those blurbs were asked for by editors and stuff. I did a a, a thing for a, the back of Delillo's book, and it was asked for. And and um, you know I, I have that terrible Irish disease. That I can't say no, you know. Um, yeah, right. I got that. You know, you got have that too. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah. Well, I want to say yes, and I think like I mean, especially when somebody because like if you've written books and you've published books, then you know how mm-hmm. difficult it is, especially in the beginning. And um, so it's you know you know and you know what it's like to go out and and have your hat in your hand and ask for blurbs, you know. And right. So, so I think it's a good impulse to want to help people. But, but go I got the sense I got the sense that this guy was a pudgy little loaf of a of a, of a, of a guy. You could you could just sense the pudge coming off him, you know, in the in in, in the way that he the, in the way that he wrote. And so I would love to get him in 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 in, in, in a ring and throw a punch. And if he happens to be a big, tall, six foot six, four hundred pounds, I'll still give him a kick in the bottom. <laughs> actually. <laughs> Yeah. Ooh, I would be. It would be nice to see writers squaring off. You know, some sort <laughs> there of... is some sort of there is some sort of place where writers actually get um, you know do that as some sort of knockout competition. I've never been involved in it, but I've heard of it. And they do something like that somewhere in Manhattan. Oh wait, the literary death match? Yeah, maybe that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it sort of plays on that trope. It's a little bit. I think it's a little bit more uh, docile than that. But you know, it's, right. it's, it's heading in that direction, which is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I I wanted to just like have I want to make one more point about blurbing because I had this on my mind before we got on the phone and uh I was thinking about writers and how some writers are very sensitive about uh branding to use a word that kind of makes me a little queasy but you know right. it's people who are who like I always wonder about or I often wonder about how writers um kind of create their own public image and how many of them are like super involved in it or how many of them really just take a hands-off approach and it just sort of happens and, and I'm, obviously I'm talking in particular about um, you know like a, a, a positive public image where you've got you know critical acclaim and you've got um, you know a, a lot of respect from uh, book media people and you sort of have like a, that kind of station does that happen strictly based on the work 
Um, does it happen because of a combination of like brand management and the work? Um, do you have a sense once you've gotten there and then you can speak to this because I think you've had some of the successes that, um, would qualify. Like, do you feel a stronger sense of self-protection, you know, to make sure that your name is associated with the right authors and the right people? Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. I know exactly what you're saying. And, 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 you know, it's, it, 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 it's, it, it's, 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 problematic these days. I mean, um, I would say that 20 years ago, if you put your foot in your mouth and you were talking, say, with the Minneapolis Star Tribune or something like that, you know, it would have repercussions for you for a week in Minneapolis or whatever it happened to be, or, or maybe a few people would know these things. And, uh, but the fact of the matter is, it used to disappear. Now it doesn't disappear. And if you put your foot in your mouth, it stays there, you know, um, for, for, for a long, long time. And you do have to be aware that, you know, you're building up some sort of um, quote-unquote uh, brand, but that's also a, you know, quite awful at the same time. Yeah, so I think yeah. we resist it, and then you have, you, have, you have to embrace it. And you have to just, um, you know... Um, you have to walk a fairly a, a, a fairly thin line, but in the end, the only thing that matters is the work that's on that's on the page. And uh, you know, I get embarrassed. I like to I like to uh, you know go along to people's readings and things like that. And then none of that matters. The only thing that's essentially going to really matter is that you uh, you know you, you you put the right word down on the page in in the correct sort of order. Having said that, I mean. Um, you know, uh, I recently uh, got got involved with um, Narrative Four, which is kind of why we're, we're you know uh, we're, we're talking today, which is a, a non-profit um, organization. Um, because I got so much out of um, my, my literary life, and I go to festivals, and I'm almost 50 years old, and I have a good time, and people come along, and I slap you on the back, and they say, "Oh, it's a pleasure to meet you," and can you sign my book? What a life! It's fantastic. It's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant life. But at a certain stage, um, I think the authors have to sit up and um, and give something back. So I got involved with a whole load of um, writers and activists, and and. Uh, we um, we um, put together an organization called uh, Narrative Four, which is you know could be Narrative for Peace or Narrative for Change or Narrative for you know uh, the end of bullying or Narrative for epilepsy or Narrative for Chicago, Narrative for New York, Narrative for Belfast. Well, essentially, what it is is we get kids from all over the world to come together. Uh, and exchange stories with one another, not just tell stories to one another, but exchange stories to one another. And so we have people like Terry Tempest Williams is on our, our executive committee. We have um, uh, we have writers like um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, Salman Rushdie, Michael Ondaches uh, on our honorary board. We have uh, Ron Rash, Luis Urea, um, all sorts of um, Andy Sean Greer could uh, <laughs> go on uh, on and on in fact um, but people we sort of looked at ourselves and said are we going to do something and what is it that we want to do and how is it that we sort of want to be remembered outside the, the, the sphere of literature and, and, and then we decided that was through the, the, the art and, and act of, uh, 
of storytelling. So, okay, so the mechanics of how it works uh, is that you get a, a bunch of kids together, and they come from disparate locations and cultural backgrounds, perhaps, and right. um, you get them in a room, and then they, they, they each write down their story, or do they, yeah. they, tell their, or do they, they tell their story to each other, and they take turns, like, transcribing one another's stories? Like, how does it, how does it go? Yeah, that's exactly, uh, well, what, you know, preferably it would be that, um, you know, um, They'd come from different parts, but you could do, say, kids from Chicago, from the south side of Chicago, the north side of Chicago, kids, you know, they don't, and they don't have to be wildly different. But but, but let's postulate that there's, um, uh, you know, we're taking kids from the south side of Chicago and kids from Limerick, which is something we're going to do in the next um, couple of months. Well, the kids from Limerick will study the geography, culture of America, and in particular, Chicago possibly over the course of a couple of weeks, even preferably over the course of a whole semester. And the kids from Chicago will study Irish culture, Irish history, uh, Irish storytelling over the course of their semester. Then we would get these kids together and they would spend a week together. And on the fourth or the third or fourth day, we would say to them, we want you to think of a story that absolutely defines your life. Um, and that's a really hard thing to do until you say to the kids, imagine that you're going to take your story and you're going to bury it in the ground. And 100 years from now, an archaeologist is going to come along, dig it up. And by taking that story out of the ground, he would know exactly who you are. This blows these kids' minds. Um, they think of really incredible things about their lives and sometimes very, very tough, sometimes very touching, sometimes very beautiful. And they sit with one another, and, and so, um, you know, um, uh, James in Chicago gets together with, uh, with, with, with Patrick in, in Limerick, and then suddenly they step into one another's shoes, and Patrick tells James a story, and James tells Patrick's story back to the group. And it is an exercise in what we call radical empathy, but it's also an exercise in sharing and stretching uh, the lungs of the world. It's a really incredible things happen when kids realize that not only is their story valuable, but the story of the person they're talking about is valuable too. And kids begin to exist outside of themselves. They, 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 you know, this whole um, act becomes one of saying, wow, people care about me. I, you know, uh, I, am, uh, I, I mean something to the world. And then when, when this exchange is finished, not only do they always remain friends um, because it's, really, it's a really powerful tool, um, these, other kids, these kids go back and get involved in great organizations like 826, Valencia, uh, you know, Doctors Without Borders, and uh, there, there's all sorts of great organizations in Chicago and in Limerick that they go back and, 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 and they work through. So it's... Um, it's, it, it's a program that tries to, you know, acknowledge that storytelling um, is where we, where we, um, where where we find our true value. Storytelling well, legislates. Well, you know, you hear that said a lot about fiction and about storytelling uh, generally. Uh, you know, it could be narrative nonfiction, it could be memoir, but um, is that it bridges the divide between two consciousness, consciousnesses, and it right. uh, it helps to nurture empathy. And right. what strikes me about the approach that you're taking with Narrative 4 um, is that, you know, you have people who are probably often, you know, young people who are probably often sharing 
uh, stories of suffering or difficulty or challenges or you know something that's definitive in their lives. But uh, I find that you know it's one thing to try to tell somebody about that stuff verbally, right. and it's another thing to write it down. Yeah. Because when you write it down, you you kind of take the time to compose. You also yeah. um, you don't have the interruptions, you know, that you often get in conversation where somebody stops you, like right right, right in the middle of your uh, you know your your big story, and then tries you know starts giving advice or whatever it might be. Um, so I don't know. It just seems like a really effective way to illustrate the power of storytelling. And, and what it can do for people. So you must you must have seen some pretty cool things. Really cool things. Trust me that 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 like you know um you know we could take kids from Belfast and we'd have you know Protestant kids and Catholic kids and that, that that's fine. But that's been 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 done before. And 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 this is not necessarily about conflict resolution. But if you get those Protestant kids from the or, or kids from Belfast from from the Shankill Road suddenly like getting together with these kids from the south side of, of Chicago. It blows their minds. Our kids from Haiti getting together with kids from Haifa. You know, the 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 the, the, illog- the supposedly illogical um, connection. Um, then you start to see all sorts of things uh, happening. And 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 the, the the thing about narrative four is that we got writers from all over the world. Literally, we went from from Colombia, from Ireland, from France, from uh, obviously the United States and Canada and Mexico and and Pakistan and Australia. Um, we're trying to be a global organization. So there's a lot of great organizations that are local that are, and that are on the ground. We have the writers behind us uh, who are sort of helping us and allowing us to be, uh, it's, we're, we're capable of, of an awful lot of reach. So that we're going to send kids from, say, um, uh, uh, say from Detroit to, um, to Lagos, Nigeria. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, she will be on the ground in in, in 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 Nigeria. You know, I'll be on the ground in New York. Roddy Doyle will be on the ground in in Dublin, um, and we will form a link with these kids, whether it just be for ten minutes or for an hour or for days. Um, and that's what that that's what's different about uh, about this organization. So, how can if people uh, listening wanted to get involved or support uh, Narrative Four, is there a way for them to do that? Yeah, absolutely. We just came out with a book called The Book of Men, uh, where we linked in with um, Esquire magazine, and we asked a whole load of writers to write about what it means to, 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 to be a man. Uh, and that was, uh, uh, you know, just inspired by uh, by, by Esquire editors. Um, and um, uh, then also then go on to narrative4.com, um, and they can support us you know, uh, by a contribution. And yes, eventually we're going to be looking for, uh, we're a year old now and we're sort of finding our feet, um, but we're going to be looking for volunteers because this thing is going to uh, uh, hopefully go viral uh, in the sense that we'll um, have all these teachers on the ground. Well, I, can, can I tell you a story? Sure. We have this incredible, two, two incredible teachers, one on the south side of Chicago, Charles Miles. Uh, an African American teacher working with, re, you know, in a, in a a school that has been sort of like neglected and run down. This man is incredible. You should see the light in his eyes when he's talking about his kids, and he's working with this um, teacher called Lee Keelock, who's from Newtown, Connecticut, um, who saw that terrible massacre uh, last December and what it did to his kids in his high school. And both of these men know that stories are about healing. 
and 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 they're you know getting their kids together and exchanging and and stepping into one another's shoes. So these kids who saw 26 murders in one day talk to kids who see 26 murders in one month, and 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 um, you know. So the narrative can be about about violence, but how do you heal? You know, where is the point of healing? And I do think that the point of healing comes in the the the, the democratic instinct for um, for storytelling and um, for 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 um, you know certain people to um, you know uh, think, oh, are you just going to heal everything by 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 being able to tell your story? But I I I, I do think. Um, it's capable, and 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 eventually we're going to have an, a, a whole army of people all around the world uh, working alongside us. Wow, that's awesome! So, did, where did like where the idea was born? Just out of conversations that you were having with fellow writers, or is it? Yeah, it was born um, through a woman, uh, an activist, and, and a, a volunteer called Lisa Consiglio, who was in Aspen, and um, she was working um, in Aspen, and we were involved in in, in an organization there, and uh, we decided to sort of take it, not just just keep it uh, local, uh, but to go to go global with it, and so um, we we uh, we all got together. We did a story exchange. This is like 15 writers uh, and, uh, and up in the hills. And it sounds rather rarefied. We were up in the hills in Aspen and stuff, and it was beautiful. Uh, but we all came to the common denominator that we've got to take this this idea back to where we live, you know, and, 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 and pass, it, pass it along through us. It's very simple. But, all, you know, good things are often very simple in that, in that same respect. And... Um, uh, and it's just, I step into your shoes, you step into mine. Okay, now let's see what the world looks like. Um, and uh, but then it's it, it, it's an expensive program to run, and it's a um, it's an ambitious thing, and you have to you have to Ishmael Bea, for instance, is 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 on our board. You know the um, you know the writer Ishmael Bea, he's actually got a brand new novel out uh, right now, um, and he wrote um, a long way uh, long way gone. Um, he was a child soldier, and he was very, very impressive when he was counselling us and like uh, you know what we do with these kids. He says, you know, you can show these kids um, a big world out there, but you better be careful not to drop them, and you better be careful that they don't get dropped in the end, because the fact of the matter is that you know if you show kids expectations and and then you drop them, you can't actually make warlords. Out, out of that sort of thing. So this is a, a mighty weapon uh, that we have in terms of storytelling, in terms of language. And we have to be careful um, how we use it and where we use it. Well, sure. And, you know, you mentioned Lee Keelock, and that was something I wanted to ask you about, uh, the teacher from Newtown, because I read about how uh, Lee, you know, reached out to you and yeah. asked you to come up to uh, Newtown because, uh, yeah. you know, he wanted his students to read, uh, you know, Let the Great World Spin. He felt like that was a book that could speak to their experience that could help them heal. So yeah. that must have been heavy and, uh, you know, very it, emotional to go up there, right? It was really heavy. It was heavy and it was beautiful and it was mind-blowing. And I, I'll tell you, as a literary experience, as any sort of human experience, it was probably one of the most profound things. That, that happened to me. He wrote to me in in January, shortly after the the the, the, the um, after Sandy Hook, and and said, you know, we've been looking for a book, and um, 
and and would you know uh, we'd like to use let the great world spin and I and I was in tears. I, I I'm not, I'm not ashamed to tell you that the, the day I got that letter I I I I sat back and I cried and and I thought wow this is something where uh, you know it affirms so much about what I've been thinking and wanting to say, and so then I got a chance in April to go up there with him. Uh, and meet the kids, and I thought, oh gosh, I'm going to have to say something profound and 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 fantastic to these kids, and and you know what happened? I said, really, I said nothing. They told me all the stuff. It was just like they told me, you know, you got to look for the light in in the dark. They told me how horrible, you know, you know these these things are, and yet, you know, uh, you have to keep reaching and you know going into different places. Um. They're talking about their brothers being killed. They're talking about like babysitting these kids that that uh, you know that were now gone and everything. Like really, uh, stories that would wrench your heart. But, but I mean, um, and they've had some real difficult moments. But but one of the common denominators about it is that they're all looking for a way, looking for a way to um, to recover, looking for a way to 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 to, to heal. And uh, you know, um, so Lee is one of those. Uh, by the way. I think our teachers are our heroes. I was on the plane the other day. I'm going to piss a lot of people off by saying this. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, they they do this call out. All military, um, uh, all people in, in you know in in the military and uh, you know uniform military, please step up. You know, and please go onto the plane for us. And all these guys got up and they're swaggering up there. And and I looked at them and I said, Why the fuck would they not like ask our teachers to get up and go first on, on onto the airplane? You know, what is it? You know that 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 you know, uh, you know, that we don't respect. Uh, you know, the the ones who are really at the forefront of what American experience should be. Why don't we respect them and have like you know people like that get up and walk onto the airplanes first? I tell you, one of the reasons is because the teachers don't get paid enough. I was just going to say, afford a bloody airplane. Right. I was going to say, I, I've, I've long wondered, you know, because uh, just to use an example, like I find myself frustrated by professions, and I'm going to use the medical profession as an example. No disrespect to doctors who do you know do a lot of wonderful right. work, but you know, when you get uh, your MD attached, affixed to your name, like that confers a certain uh, dignity on you and esteem in, in our culture where it's like, well, you know, she's a doctor. And, you you know, that all of a sudden you become someone in our society and you're held in high regard kind of automatically, or at least that's the way I've always sort of experienced it and, and felt it, you know, around me. Right. And, you know, why why do we not do the same thing for educators? Like these people charged with, like, educating our children yeah. and you, we pay them like shit. We uh, right. kind of look right. down on them. They're considered, you right. know, it's crazy. Right. It's completely, completely crazy. Explain it to an, a, a, an alien uh, land, landed down on, you know, uh, on, on Earth that, that, that we uh, are, are cutting money from our educational programs. And, and 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 you know and treating kids differently you know um or you know it's just oh my god it and 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 uh you know taking away teachers and then we talk about values in our society and 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 the, the most core value one of the great human rights the right to to to, to an education um, is sort of dissolving dissolving in front of our eyes well you know my daughter spent all this fucking money on 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 military um installations and uh craft and all this sort of thing it just to me it was that it was like our priorities are screwed up again i know our priorities were screwed up when 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 the soldiers came home from vietnam and people spat on them that was sick too 
But now our priorities have become so ridiculous and conservative that, that, that we're terrified if we don't applaud, um, you know, uh, these people. Like, right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Well, there's, yeah. I mean, like the thing too is that like I noticed in, in the education system, you know, because public education is increasingly um, squeezed and it's, you know, I mean, at least in Los Angeles where I live, it's like it's hard to find public schools for your kid to go to that you feel um, you're comfortable with. You know, there's not, uh, I mean, there, there are some, but you have to live in the right neighborhoods and you have to play that whole game. And then it's like, you know, you can see that people of means are sending their kids to private school and even at the preschool level, I noticed that, like, you, know, you can see parents angling and playing that whole game. And you can see how those of means, like, automatically have, like, an advantage. And, and it's, not, it's not the people with the money that have the advantage. It's, you know, they're, they're kids. And, you know, the kids without wind up down a different road. And that really, right. ang- that really angers me. It should be a more level playing field for kids who are five years old, for God's sakes. You know? Sure, sure. And, 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 and that's logical. But you know what people will say? And they'll call you sentimental because you're, you, you know, you're saying something like that. Bollocks to that. Like, it's full of sentiment, but the people who la- label it sentimental, they, they you know, they, yeah, I, I hate that sort of, um, you know, vast manipulation of, you know, what is in essence, um, you know, a, a, a human right. It should be a, a decent human right that you have a chance and access to the same level of education and the same level of, you know, uh, commitment and desire and stamina, perseverance uh, as, uh, uh, as other people. But you start saying that, it's like somehow you're, you're you know, you're, well, you're a damn commie or you're, uh, you know, <laughs> something like that. Well, but know. the people, yeah, the people who are saying that are, you know, the ones who's usually, you know, their kids are, are at the private school or whatever it is, you know. It's like yeah. if, if your child is up against it in with their public school, then you probably wouldn't be, uh, you yeah. know, so inclined. But it's a, it's a well, problem. Hopefully we can figure figure out a better I- way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So before I let you go, I want to ask you a little bit more about, um, you know, your writing career, how you got into it, challenges that you might have faced along the way. Um, You know, you started out and I think this is interesting in light of, um, you know, your later work, but you started out as a journalist. uh, I assume sort of following in your dad's footsteps. You wrote for the Irish press. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Irish press, Evening Press, did some work for the Irish Indo um, Independent and yeah, yeah, I was a young journalist. I started when I was, well, I actually started when I was 12, believe it or not. Uh, but I really, I got a full-time job when I was about 17. Um, and then worked for the paper for about four years. And had my own column in a, um, in a, in a paper in Dublin. And then sort of shocked everyone, including myself, by just giving it all up and going away. And coming to the States to sit down and write a novel, which was, so bad that 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 um, you know I have actually have two novels in the drawer. I have two really horrific novels that will never ever see the light of day. Never. But at least you, bro- at least you have the good sense to keep them there, right? Oh God, yeah, yeah. My brother says that he's going to going to like he has a copy and he says he's going to sell it to a publisher one day. I, I and I guarantee you this, it would ruin my career. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's the worst form of juvenilia and just uh yeah it was it was really bad okay so what so what prompted the move like you you said you shocked yourself but like i mean did did you have some sort of pivotal experience or was it just like a i don't know just like a sudden youthful movement and you flew flew across the the atlantic and that was it same age same age you got out of college was same age that i got out of um got, got, got out of um uh 
um, the, the newspaper that I was working in, and um, and and uh, sort of took off on on on, on some something reckless. I just was, I knew that my life was heading in, in, in you know, it's going to be okay, you know. Um, I could have had a job in a newspaper and it would have been grand. It wouldn't, wouldn't have been a problem, but I knew that somehow, sometimes you have to wound yourself in a certain way. Sometimes you have to put yourself in danger. You have to put your, your soul at risk or your head at risk or even your body at risk. Um, just to get out from underneath the, 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 the deadening of, of, of um, your own you know, essence to normality. So, you know, I just didn't want to be completely normal. I wanted to go out and, and you know what it says? Emil Zola says you have to live your life out loud. Well, I think I'm trying to do that with this show. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I mean, that is brilliant. You've got you to gotta live it out loud. I love, I love that. I love that, 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 that idea. So did you, okay, so you come to the United States, you land... Do you immediately get on the bike, or did you go and like? Because I remember reading that you you actually did the Kerouac thing, where you got the one long ream of paper and, and yeah. you stuck it in a typewriter. And yeah, tried yeah, to- uh, and, and and it was crap. And and I, I got to tell you that 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 the A key and the E key didn't work very well on the typewriter. So at the end of the summer, when I was writing this stuff, I couldn't even read the the the, the, the uh, what 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 I what I'd supposedly uh, <laughs> written it was yeah it was just just awful yeah but you know that's a young man's thing you just do it and and, and then um, and then with a group of people I said come on let's go get a bus because I've been reading um, Ken Kesey and Electric Kool Aid Acid Test let's go get a bus and we'll go across the United States and and then everybody's like yeah man let's do it yeah yeah and then when I finally went down to check out the price of a bus uh, <laughs> everybody's like well you know my mother wants me home or you know I gotta go back to college and so I ended up um, you know traveling with a friend for a little while um, and then on my own for about a year um, and it was um, it was oh I mean this sounds corny but but it was like university the uni- you know being out on the road I learned so much and um was this was this was this on the bike or was this in like buses and trains no on the bike on the bicycle on the bicycle because nobody would go on the bus and i couldn't afford a bus on my own and uh, i didn't want to go by car um and you know so um you know i went through all the forms thinking about i I did think about walking i have to say but to walk across the united states i think probably takes about two years oh yeah no you but so like where did you actually go can you can you summarize the route start Started up in um, um, Boston, went down all the way down the, um, through North Carolina, South Carolina, um, down to Florida, across to through Alabama, Mississippi, into New Orleans, into Texas, down into Mexico, up around Mexico, New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, and across to um, the western seaboard and down Highway 1 and 101 and finished coming across the Golden Gate Bridge. In San Francisco, um, and I remember calling my calling my parents and telling them I, that, that that I'd done it. And, they must um, they must have been relieved. Like, God, thank God he's off this bike. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, if only they knew. Some I tell you, I, I, I you know I have I still have um, my diaries of the time, um, and they're in my house now. But I have a seventeen year old or almost seventeen. Uh, she's sixteen, a fifteen year old, and a ten year old, and um, I have duct taped. 
those diaries <laughs> so that they they, they, they they can't get it can't get in them because I do not want them to know what sort of shit I got up to when I was on the road. <laughs> I was gonna say it, it was just yeah, all pretty crazy. Yeah, and, and I'm sure you have the same experience yourself, right? Oh yeah, there's a lot. I mean, God, I mean, and just some of the stuff that I wrote down in that tent. Because that was sort of my entertainment at night. I would just write, and I just I remember like it's almost painful to reread because so much of it. I I, I used to joke and call them my whining books because I would complain <laughs> so much. You know, right. it's just a lot of that. You know, especially- well, the problem the problem with going on the Appalachian Trail is, you know, um, well, I'm well, I'm not sure, but 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 you know, it's not as if like when I was on my bicycle, I could at least you know find a campground and I could run down the road and find a pub. You know, and sit and sit in the bar or something like that. Right. On the Appalachian Trail, they're not exactly serving Sierra Nevadas and like frozen daiquiris. Uh, you know, at uh, at at eight thousand feet. No, are they? No, it was just like you know ticks and mosquitoes. <laughs> you know, <it> was bad. <laughs> but uh, can I ask you? This is going to maybe sound like an odd question, but did you wear a helmet when you rode your bike? It's not an odd question, and and I will tell you that my son had an accident um, this this April on his bike. He's a really good he's a really good racer, and, he, and he's just turned fifteen. Um, really, really, really good. And helmet saved his life. He came off, and and, and helmet saved his life. And um, but I was reminiscing about it, and I did not wear a helmet. Okay. And, I, uh, yeah, but I think it's a generational thing because I have this argument with my uh, wife and my mother all the time because. I'm one of those idiots who will ride a bicycle around Los Angeles, which is not a friendly biking city, especially when, wow. you're, when you're not on the west side. And, like, you know, when I was four years old, I didn't have a helmet on. I just We just rode right. our bikes, you know. And so all of a all sudden right. we live in this culture where it's become, you know, it's, it's become like a sacrilege to not have a helmet on your head. And I get yeah. that, you know, the safety, like you say, there it can save you. But I just, I mean, it's you, you made it all the way around the, yeah. the United States and, you you know, you didn't have a helmet on. I know, I know, but I, but, 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 but I tell you that, 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 that I am alive in this world now, and uh, because uh, my son wore him, I saw him crash, and, 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 and if anything had happened to him, I would be dead. I mean, I'd be dead uh, spiritually, and so I'm, I, I, I have a lot to give. I wear a helmet now, um, all the time, but I didn't. Uh, like even I, when you I, I, like, I, are you wearing one right now? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. As, as I sit, as, uh, as I sit, as I sit in my office, banging my fucking head off the wall, trying to write another short story. It's like, oh Jesus, yeah. Let me put on my helmet here. Maybe that's yeah. the answer. Who knows? <laughs> so, um, just to kind of follow it a little bit more, you know, you um, had these two kind of, you know, in the drawer manuscripts. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you went to the University of Texas. So yes. you, after your bike trip, you then went on to university. Uh, is that am I following the timeline correctly, or was there something before yes. that? Actually, um, there was something before that. So between the bike um, and the University of Texas, I um, I worked with um, juvenile delinquents in Texas, kids who came out of juvie and broken homes, and um, that was a really fascinating experience. And I was their wilderness guide. Uh, and this was for about another two years. So I take kids out into the middle of nowhere, uh, a virgin creek bed, and they would live there for three months. And we'd build pine pole shelters and gravity-fed showers and uh, an outdoor latrine, uh, grow a little vegetable garden, and um, basically I read them to sleep at night. It all sounds very idyllic, but these were kids who'd come up to me the first night and say, fuck you, man, I'm going to... I'm going to kill you. And I say, well, hold on a second. Before you kill me, because 
I'm the only one who knows how to get out of here. Let me teach you how to get out of here. And then I sit, sit down with them and say, that's the North Star, you know, and that, and, and, um, and they say, fuck you, man. And then, you know, they'd inevitably leave in the first week and run away. And, and, and um, you know, they tell me, I'm going to run away. I said, that's fantastic. I really wish you the best luck. Here, take my knife, um, take this map, you know, take this water bottle. And they're like, what are you talking about? I said, just take them, just take them, you know, for when you run away. And uh, inevitably they would leave, right? And they'd come back an hour. The most was probably about four hours later, whimpering because they were scared of the dark. Huh. And there was nothing scarier than, 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 than the dark for, for, for a, a tough city kid out, out in the middle of nowhere. That's a truth. So it was, yeah, sort of a, sort of, sort of a, it was an, a, it was a, a wonderful miracle of a, a, a of a program taught me an, an awful lot about myself and about, you know, people about rehabilitation and all that sort of stuff. So how did you wind up in Texas? How did that happen? Well, I'd gone through on my bicycle and met, and I'd met this fantastic guy called Terry Cooper, um, who was in charge of this um, this this um, juvenile facility called Miracle Farm in Brenham, Texas. And he was very cool, and he became my mentor in 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 all sorts of ways, and um, taught me a lot about you know survival, about kids, about childcare, about literature, uh, science, all these things. And so um, he invited me to come back and 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 work with the kids uh, after my, my my bicycle trip was finished. So I I took him up on it, and that's how I got residency in Texas, and that's how I went to the the University of Texas then afterwards. But I was also while I was in the University of Texas, I was a a bartender, and uh, I had a gun pulled on me one night. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. That Jesus seems Christ. that seems like a kind of like a, a Texas thing to happen, right? <laughs> I know. I mean, but it was by like this fourteen-year-old blonde cherubic little fat kid, um, <laughs> and um, I, it was terrifying. I literally, I did see not 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 in the course of of when it was happening, but later on that evening after. Um, you know, I wasn't shot at, or I wasn't shot, but um, I was chased down the street with this gun. Later, I, I literally did have my, my my life flash in front of my eyes. Yeah, uh, there's something no, and, and it happens. I've seen. I, I never have had a gun pulled on me and pointed at me. But the, I was teaching um, at Santa Monica College, and my very first day on the job, uh, I'm walking across campus, like trying to find my classroom, and I see two guys square off, and one of the guys pulls a pistol out of his waist belt and points it at the other guy's chest, and this guy just disappears. Um, and I froze, and it wow. was—it's a, a very surreal experience. Wow! You know? Have you written about this? No, I haven't. Uh, in fact, I'm surprised I haven't talked about it on this show before. But it was—it uh, was just I felt. Actually, I'm hearing an echo. Is that—is the other phone on? Do you have like another phone on? No, um, you know, but um, there was a, another call came through from. Um, or it's, there's uh, nothing on speaker. I just heard my—I just heard my own voice, but. No, no, um, no, nothing on speaker. Not as far as I know. Okay. Well, anyway, it's just it was very strange. It was very. Um, it, it, I remember in retrospect thinking about it and being like, "That is completely ridiculous that somebody would do that." I felt very angry about it, and I just seemed it seemed uh, just the, the most absurd thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> yeah. That, well, that that is complete. That that's completely absurd. You should. Uh, 
Yeah, you should be. You should write about. It. I'll, I'll interview that. I'll, I'll interview about uh, you about that some night. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I just there's something about guns, you know, and just like the, you know, machines of death and people mm. taking these things into their hands. It just it it it, uh, it feels so unnatural. Uh, Did you meet any weirdos when you were um, when you were walking? Oh my God! Yeah, I met you know I met a lot of really great people, and that I think predominated. But I met. Um, you know, lots of hillbillies. I, you know, you get picked up by hitchhikers when you're trying to get into town, and uh, you know, there's a million like the, the people that you meet along the way. And it sounds like you probably had a similar thing, um, you know, on your bike. You know, that's that's probably the best part about it is the serendipity of meeting these really great people or having these weird exchanges, you know, in the middle of nowhere with somebody that you would never meet otherwise. You know, exactly. Uh, I spent um, one evening in. Um, in California um, with uh, the, a man and his family and the guy turned out to have spent seven years in San Quentin prison for murder um, and I was traveling with another guy Chris who I'd met on a, on a bicycle and he kept turning to Chris and saying um, you know uh, I don't I don't like you but I won't kill you because <laughs> I like your friend and I was like oh my god and we found out about him later yeah he actually had spent seven years in San Quentin for murder it was it was a crazy story and it's like um yeah, I mean, if I actually wrote down all the details, uh, you wouldn't, you possibly wouldn't believe me. Well, no, I had a similar, you know, I didn't actually have this experience, but I met a guy on the trail, and this was right after it had happened, and he was getting ready to get picked up to leave the trail. But we were in Tennessee, and he had been hitchhiking, and some guy in a pickup truck picked him up and wound up uh, taking him back to his house. Like, and he was like an authentic hillbilly. And his wife was a mute. <laughs> uh, yeah, she like worked at Wendy's or something. It was just like real Tennessee hillbillies. And he wound up drinking moonshine with this guy. And he invited his buddy over who was also uh, an ex-con who had committed murder. And they wound up uh, getting out all this like Civil War regalia because I guess they were into that. And they, you know, he just was like he had this look on his face like, man, you would not believe what I've just been through. <laughs> you know? Well, I, I, I'll tell you that, that this guy in, in, in California was like um, getting drunker and drunker. And then he was um, calling up on the, on the phone to get crank. He wanted to get crank. And then um, his wife was there and she was completely silent the whole night. And a, a white woman with blonde hair. This guy was Native American, huge, six foot four, looked like he stepped out of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And, um, you know, there's a parrot in the corner. And every time that um, this guy cursed, um, the parrot would echo his curse. <laughs> and it was just, it was unbelievable. And he had like chains out the back and he, and, and he said, and started telling us that he had chained up his brother, but his brother had escaped. And um, so eventually the guy crashed, right? And I stayed in the living room, and and uh, uh, we had put our bikes in this guy's uh, uh, van beforehand, and we waited for the sun to 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 rise up until we got our bikes out of our van. And, 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 and ran down the hill and 50 yards away from his house, my tire blew. Oh, and I thought God. this guy was going to come after us. And I thought he was going to kill us. And because the, the other part of the story that I didn't tell you is that in the middle of the night, and this is kind of something that I'm kind of ashamed of, I actually never told anybody this um, part. In the middle of the night, um, where I woke up and I heard her whimpering. And, and, and she was saying, you always hurt the people that you love. You always hurt the people that you love. And obviously he was, he, he, he was 
beating her. But, I mean, if I'd have gone in there to try and do something, oh, this God. was not the era of cell phones or anything like that. Right. Yeah, he, he, would, he would have killed me. He definitely would have killed me. He'd been a part of an assassination squad for the Marines in Vietnam, all this stuff. I was like, it, it, it was... There are still those crazy nights that happen um, in America these days. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, this has been super fun talking. I really appreciate it. I congratulate you yeah. on uh, the work that you're doing with Narrative 4 as well, and I'm really glad that the team... And have everyone... Can you, can, can you tell everyone to go out and buy the Book of Men? Because um, when they do so, uh, it funds uh, Narrative 4, um, and it's published by Picador, and it's got you know 80 different writers in it. Uh, 80 different writers to, to you know, doing uh, How to Be a Man, Call the Book of Men, Salman Rushdie, Michael Cunningham, uh, Terry Tempest Williams, uh, Luis Urea. We have all sorts of people. Um, let me see. We have Jess Walter and uh, Mona Simpson. And uh, it just goes on and on and on. We've got the best writers from all around the world, and they're all contributing to, to, to it. And every time... Uh, you know, you buy the Book of Men, uh, it helps these kids around the world. And also, they can go on to um, narrative4.com and check out what it is um, that, that, that we're doing. Well, um, glad to, I'm glad to shine a light on it, and uh, I hope people listening uh, take heed because it's a really worthy project. And, and once again, uh, such a great pleasure talking with you. Congratulations on all your success, and best of luck to you going forward. Thank you. Take care. All right, you guys, there you go. That is Colm McCann. What a terrific guest. The new collection, once again, is called The Book of Men. You can get that from Picador right now. It's a great way to support Narrative 4, the new nonprofit that Colm is spearheading. You can check that out at narrative4.com, and you can visit Colm online at colmmccann.com. Thanks again to today's sponsor, Squarespace. If you need a new website or online portfolio, or want to improve the one that you already have, visit squarespace.com. And when you sign up, be sure to enter the offer code OTHER12 and you'll get 10% off. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And hey, don't forget about that app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for whatever device you have. It's the best way to listen uh, and the best way to access premium content and the show's full archives. So please go get that app. The app itself is free. Okay. I hope you're feeling well. I kind of like this music. Imagine me doing uh, aerobics with extreme vigor to this music. So it is the holidays. It's stressful out there. The tension is building. The sleigh bells are jingling. uh, The Christmas carols. Everywhere you go, I get it. I understand. Just, uh, just breathe. We can get through this. <laughs> it's all going to be over very soon. Please remember that Man Ray took Marcel Proust's deathbed photo, and that Jackson Pollock once said, "Quote: I can control the flow of paint. There is no accident." End quote. Uh, I feel like the music stoppage right there was very dramatic. I can control the flow of paint. There is no accident. Do you think you really believe that, or do you think that was just PR? I have no idea. That's it for now. Thanks again to Colin McCann. Go get the Book of Men. Go sign up for the TNB Book Club. These are great gift ideas, people. These are bona fide stocking stuffers. So uh, suddenly it is December. Uh, The winter solstice is almost here. 
the darkness is closing in. There's no denying it. Let's embrace it in light of that fact. In light of the fact that the darkness is closing in, let us embrace the darkness. What am I doing in the darkness? Uh, I am sitting here by myself talking into a microphone. Hello? (laughs) 